Well, I'm very excited about Advent because Christmas is, of course, a favorite season of most. And for me, uh, I know Christmas is coming uh, not just because of Advent, but because uh, this is the time of year where my family starts asking questions like, what do what do I get? What do you want for Christmas? What, you know, this is what I want for Christmas. This is the time of year where my beautiful daughter uh, makes a list of things that I'm supposed to get for my wife, and then I give her the credit card, and she goes and shops for them because she enjoys that process a whole lot more than I do. And then Carolyn gets what she wants instead of me bringing her something like an iron or something that a... She had no longing for whatsoever. Most parents know the experience of being awakened first thing in the morning, kids, you know, alarmingly, being your alarm that morning. And the funny thing about it is, is that when you're a kid, you have no comprehension that mom and dad are Santa and that they were up till two in the morning arranging the presents just right. Uh, I remember being a kid and having a really difficult time getting to sleep just because I was so excited about what was coming that morning. I, I, you know, you, just the anxiety, the, the anticipation, you know, the adrenaline rushing through my system. And that experience, that Christmas is coming experience, is an ideal example of what we're talking about today when we talk about hope. Uh, there is a significant difference between what is called wishing or hoping for something and a biblical kind of life-altering hope. Uh, kids aren't excited about Christmas morning because they hope they're going to get presents or they wish they're going to get presents. They have hope because they know they're going to get presents, and it makes them excited. And this is the substantial difference between the good news of Jesus Christ and religious systems. Uh, Jesus isn't saying, do your best and hope, wish, guess, that when you die and face the Father face to face, that you won't be judged eternally for your sin. So in the meantime, just try really hard not to be bad. That is not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I have forgiven you, and as we'll see in a minute, I have credited you with my good works. I have completely made you acceptable to the Father. You are secure in your eternal destiny. You know you are going to go to heaven not because you're a good person, but because Jesus has completely made you acceptable to the Father. Therefore, have hope. Be encouraged. Learn to know and love me. That's the gospel. It's being certain of something because we know it's fixed in the future. Advent hope is the kind of hope that buoys one's spirit because of the certainty of a future event. Take, for instance, people who are either teachers or students here today. We've just had a week of vacation. So it's just like a foretaste of that which is to come. Three weeks from now, my wife will be off for three solid weeks. My daughter has a couple more weeks of school, and then she has a few weeks off, and same with my son. And, and I remember that college experience, that feeling of, okay, man, I am in the middle of a semester, and ugh, I'm under this pile. And then you get to Thanksgiving, and you realize, gracious, I only got like two more weeks and then finals and then I'm done. And I would come back from Thanksgiving with this renewed vigor for the last couple of weeks of school. Well, this is what we're talking about. This is, this is what biblical hope is. It's you know something's going to take place in the future and it gives your spirit a lift. We are excited today to work through a passage in Luke 2 
where Jesus is being brought into the temple in Jerusalem by his parents. And at, at this point, they run into two people, and we're going to look at the encounter they have with Simeon, who was told that he was going to get the, meet the Messiah before he died. And it enabled him to hold on because he was an old guy. Before we look, though, at what we'll call the basis for Advent hope, or the reason you and I, the practical way we get to experience Advent hope, there are two really cool realities uh, that bookend our passage today that I would hate to rush over, all right? A couple of quick thoughts. I call them two quick thoughts before the two main points, all right? And quick thought number one is this. Jesus fulfilled the law and imputed his righteousness to us. So before I even start talking about Advent hope, I I really want you to see something that really forms the theological foundation for us being able to rest secure. Uh, So I'm going to read from the text here, verses 22 through 24. This is the experience that his parents had. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who is the first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, Jewish law was specific about what parents were to do, particularly when they had a firstborn son. They were to wait till the eighth day after the son's birth because seven days after the birth, the woman was considered unclean from the standpoint of the birth and the afterbirth. And then additionally, they had another month they'd wait. Leviticus 12 requires Mary and Joseph to present a purification sacrifice, which would only be able to take place in Jerusalem, so they would have to journey there. And also, the law required that a month after the firstborn child arrived, they would have to redeem that child, or in other words, they would pay, they would actually present an offering for the child. Uh, Parents were required to sacrifice one of the firstborn of the animals in their flock and make a payment of five shekels. So in, in one encounter in the tabernacle, Jesus fulfills three aspects of the law. And this is just the beginning. The kid isn't a week old. And throughout the entirety of his life, Jesus says in John 6, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to uh, fulfill it, to not just to not ever blow it big with sin, but to actually forward progress, actually check off all that is considered holy and required by the law. And Jesus, from the very infancy, from his very infancy, was fulfilling the law so that when he would die on the cross, something really interesting would take place. He would transfer his goodness to us as we were transferring our sin to him. Theologians call it imputed righteousness. John Piper says it like this, quote, The law was kept perfectly by Christ, and all its penalties against God's sinful people were poured out on Christ. Therefore, the law is now manifestly not the path to righteousness, Christ is. The ultimate goal of the law is that we would look to Christ, not law-keeping, for our righteousness. So we never have to go to God and say, look at all I've done, you should accept me. Jesus has given us his righteousness. That's all you will ever need. A Christian is completely and totally dependent on that righteousness to be made acceptable to the Father. 
that is our certainty about the future. That is the certainty about our eternal destiny. That is why we can have a hope that would buoy our spirits. Jesus fulfilled the law and imputed his righteousness to us. Now, here's quick thought, too. And you see this at the end of our section of reading here in Luke 2.33, and that is that God ordered Mary and Joseph's steps in spite of their lack of comprehension. Look what it says in verse 33, and his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Now, for any number of reasons, this is a comforting thought to me, and I hope it is to you as well. There is a not-so-subtle pressure in the world to feel like you've got to present yourself as someone who's got your life figured out or you've got all the angles covered. That certainly is the case in the Christian like vocational world. You know, people come and say, what's the vision of your church? And how, what's going to happen in 10 years? I don't know what's going to happen in 10 months. And so sometimes I'm like, you know, we're just kind of on God's roller coaster. and We'll see where he takes us. So there is this subtle pressure that you have to kind of comprehend everything ahead of time, and that makes you really spiritual. And you see in Mary and Joseph's experience especially Mary. I mean, she gave birth to a child that was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You'd think she'd grasp things pretty quickly. But she, knowing this child was special, was even with her husband to go, wow, I'm marveling at what's being said about him. They continued to grow in their comprehension. They were taken to deeper levels of understanding about what's going on. This is not only true about the path for your life, but more importantly and more relevant to our our walk with Jesus is this is the experience we have as Christians. We, we experience grace when we first meet Jesus, and we're really excited about it. And then the years lug on, and we go, gosh, I feel like that, that zeal I had at first is kind of languishing. And what happens is, is by his grace, we are brought into a new encounter with him where we get to marvel at his goodness. And sometimes it's pain. Sometimes it's difficulty that produce these circumstances But our life, our Christian life, is an ongoing series of moments where we marvel at a deeper level of comprehension. There's no way we can get all of this early on. This is going to be a progressive revelation. We we are just humans and incapable of seeing the whole chessboard, if you will. Now, there was one thing that tied both Jesus' parents and Simeon together in an interesting way, and that really... We'll transition to my two main points from these two quick points, which is his parents, Jesus' parents, were looking to the authoritative law for guidance. Simeon was guided by the prophets to believe that the Messiah was coming and then led by the Spirit in his personal encounter with God to believe that he would see him before he died. Both sets of characters in this drama make clear the first aspect of Advent hope. The first thing that will enable you and I to experience Advent hope is that our hope is reliant on trustworthy inspiration. The basis for any hope is somebody who is, can be trusted, uh, an authority figure, some group of people that will make a promise that is so believable that you actually rest. The registrar at your college that says, Christmas break begins here. Well, once it's written down, it's on the internet, <laughs> it's, 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 it's put in stone, you as a student know that is for certain that's going to happen. I know my, my Christmas break is coming soon. It's all dependent. All of life's hopes are dependent on the trustworthiness of somebody's word. And in our case, 
we see it as the trustworthy word of God. Verses 24 through 26 read like this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The promise of salvation is just that. It's a promise. That promise only provides relief if you are assured the person making the promise is trustworthy. Uh, Christmas's holidays are coming. This is a certainty. The hope of Advent and why we have Advent as a calendar celebration in the church is to have a, a physical moment in time experience where we say we know something's going to happen and now we're going to count down to it. Four weeks, three, two, one, Christmas. And we do this because this is the picture of hope that's presented to us in Scripture. This is what helps us in our suffering to know that one day it will be over. Now, in the case of uh, our church, we are promising you a Christmas Eve candlelight service, and then there will be no Sunday morning worship service on December 25th. This gives the staff at our church great hope. Because we don't get to take Sunday mornings off like y'all seem to. You know what I mean? We, this is our job. So we're here every Sunday, whether we want to sleep in through the rainstorm or not. And we pry ourselves out of bed. So the fact that we know that Christmas Sunday morning, we are going <laughs> to... Until my kids wake me up. Now they're 22, so I'm probably going to be waking them up. But this is the case with everybody... And that is that we know something is coming, and so we have hope. And this, and this is what Simeon's experience was. He was an Israelite. Like all Jews, he was looking forward to the deliverance of the Messiah that was prophesied about in Isaiah 40. And on top of that, he had had an experience with the Holy Spirit where he was promised as an individual that he wasn't going to die before he actually saw the coming of the Messiah. He understood properly, as we'll find out in the next section of Scripture, that a salvation was coming to the whole world and he was getting to see it. Now, the point here is that the Israelites, as a nation, had been waiting a long time for this Messiah, but they believed he was coming and it provided them hope, even through all those years where they were exiled and punished and hurt. They also had people like Simeon who received promises that, they were going to get to see the Messiah, and he'd waited a long time too. It says he was really old, and he'd been hanging around. It doesn't say how many years before the promise was made, but it's pretty clear that Simeon was pretty excited. This had been a long time coming, and these people were not hoping the Messiah would come. They were not wishing for it. In order to truly know hope in a biblical sense of the word, you have to know the promises of your heavenly Father. And you have to be growing in your comprehension of his love for you so that those promises can take root in your heart and be trustworthy enough for you to look forward to their future answer. Now, there are two things that presumes. One is that you believe God's word is God's word, and the second is that you are actually familiar with God's word. The presumption that we would obviously bring to this point would be that you would see the written word of God as the authoritative voice of God, full of promises for us and to us. 
And as we've said before here at PRISM, our confidence in Scripture's reliability is rooted first and foremost in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, He gave his full endorsement to the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. And then he also uh, rose from the dead to kind of sort of validate that what he was saying and his promise to let the Holy Spirit work through the apostles to record what we now have is the New Testament prophecy. These things are all rooted in who Jesus is. You know, if Jesus rose from the dead, then we feel like we can have secure confidence that his word is trustworthy. And authors like Brennan Manning have made statements along those same lines. Quote, what gives the teaching of Jesus its power, Manning asks. What distinguishes it from the Quran, the teachings of Buddha, or the wisdom of Confucius? The risen Christ does. For example, if Jesus did not rise, we can safely praise the Sermon on the Mount as a magnificent ethic. If he did, such praise doesn't matter. The sermon becomes a portrait of our ultimate destiny. The transforming force of the word resides in the risen Lord who stands by it and thereby gives it final and present meaning. See, the scriptures are the basis upon which we are given a promise that we so believe is true that we actually feel an encouragement because we know one day this will most certainly happen. Ultimately, it is our experience and encounter with the risen Christ, the ongoing experience of walking with the Spirit and knowing Him personally that enables us to have our confidence in his trustworthiness fueled, which is why I would always encourage you to to find a place in your day where you read the scriptures and meditate on them, where you are praying specifically, you know, about the things in your life, where you are asking God uh, to guide and direct your life. It's not because that's a requirement for salvation. It's really the only means by which we become familiar with the promises of God to such a degree that we can actually impart that truth to our soul, to rest in it, and then allow the hope to spring forth from that. Uh, My favorite picture of my kids at Christmas time is this one from 2000. And uh, they were such great kids, and they still are. But they've had like 22 decades of Christmas morning experiences with us. And then multiple encounters with their mother and I, where over the years they've learned that certain things are just absolutely a reality. Uh, Mom and Dad go to church on Sundays because Dad works there. That's a reality. Um, Christmas morning is going to have presents around the trees. they got two decades worth of proof. It will happen. All of that confidence they have about Christmas morning not being one big, huge disappointment is built on two decades of relational experience. See, it's it's promises that are both given and implied by virtue of the relationship. And this is what God is calling you to. If you want to experience Advent hope, it's not going to come mystically in the sense that it's just going to happen by you sitting at church on a Sunday. It's going, to inquire, it's going to require of you and I 
a, a daily meditation, or as Jesus said in his prayer, you know, a daily bread of his word. It's going to require you and I simply meditating on the realities of who we are as the beloved children of God. And it's out of that that we find ourselves saying, you know, I, I can rest. I know my future is secure. I know my eternal destiny is secure. I have hope, and it gives me encouragement. Our hopes are completely reliant on trustworthy inspiration. Here's my second main point for you today, and that's this. Our hopes are realized in the Savior's incarnation. If you don't know the word incarnation, it's just merely Jesus coming in the flesh, the eternal God incarnated in a human being. See, our hopes are realized in that in the same way Simeon's were. Verses 27 through 32, this is Simeon's experience. As he came in, uh, in, and he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in the arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now, are you, letting, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Uh, in the same way the Lord used Jesus' arrival uh, to bring to completion the hope that Simeon had, we experience hope through Jesus' coming to earth as a man as well, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. You see, because of his birth, life, death, and resurrection, we get to experience both a present hope in eternal life, and this is a certainty made possible by what Jesus has done for us, and then a future hope that the Savior will come again in the future to consummate history. We have hope for the present because Jesus has come to quench our thirst as we daily seek him and a future hope that one day he will return and with his coming completely alleviate earthly burdens and pain and free us from our struggle with sin. It was Charles Spurgeon who wrote, The world with his temptations may seek to ensnare us, but mightier is he who is for us than all they who be against us. The mechanizations of our own deceitful hearts may harness and annoy us, but he who hath begun the good work in us will carry it on and perfect it in the end, to the end. Because Jesus came to us, we can be assured that all of the labors, all of his sacrifices, not only get us started on the path to knowing and glorifying and enjoying him, but it's going to bring that process, albeit for some of us it seems slow and painful, it will come to a conclusion. It was Paul who originally said in Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When I was in fifth grade, I asked my parents for a skateboard. It was the first skateboard I'd ever had. Um, I wasn't promised at all that I was going to receive this thing. Uh, I was my mom's only son, and she wasn't overprotective, but, you know, any mom's going to consider when they're going to put a skateboard under their rambunctious 11-year-old. And so I asked, and, and then just sort of kind of anxiously was waiting to see whether or not 
that request was going to actually come true. One time during that Christmas season, my parents went out and left one of my sisters in charge of the house, which meant I was free from my parents' oversight, and I began to explore, and I entered into the Holy of Holies, uh, their bedroom closet, where since time immemorial, parents have foolishly thought they were hiding their bought Christmas gifts from their children. There, buried in the shopping bags and the boxes, I came across an oblong-shaped object with wheels on the bottom. Jackpot! Once I discovered that skateboard in the closet, every opportunity I had, every time my mother left the house, I ran up there, and I'd take that thing out. I'd stand up on it in the closet, and this is what it's going to be like in the future, and I would look at it, and and it was amazing, the experience, that once I discovered it, um, I had been given such joy knowing that even though I hadn't been given it yet, even though I hadn't seen it come to completion, it provided me joy, just the anticipation of it and the certainty that it was coming. Advent hope is all about knowing that God has provided and resting with the joy of that reality. The gospel provides present joy for us even though we haven't experienced the full measure of a promised deliverance. Our heavenly father is completely trustworthy. We can believe his promises to us and rest confidently in the hope that he will meet our needs because his word has promised us so. As well, through our daily pursuit of him, we can now begin to enjoy the Lord's presence in us. We have not been left as orphans. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit to guide us and refresh us as Simeon was guided and to provide for us what is really the first experience of Advent hope. So let's pray that we can experience that ourselves this season, okay? Father, thank you for being uh, incredibly gracious to people who are both not as grateful as we should be and certainly not deserving. And I'm thankful that you love us. I'm thankful that, as is the case with Mary and Joseph, they, they wouldn't have known all the experiences associated with being a, uh, uh, what they were getting into. And I'm grateful that you superintended that journey for them and that they didn't have to have it all figured out. I'm grateful that people like Simeon got to experience hope in a way that promises us the same, that as we discover what your word says about all of our aspects of life, that we can trust you, then that ultimately as Christians we have the hope of knowing that one day the burdens of this world will be behind us. And I pray that that reality that rest waits for us, that truth would be anchored in your, in your resurrection, Jesus, and in your word's promise that it would actually give us comfort in difficult times. We pray this blessing of Advent hope on your people in Jesus' name. Amen.